Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I am your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 42 with my friend Aaron. Uh, I was very excited to finally sit down with Aaron. We've been going back and forth, God, almost since the beginning of the podcast, um, trying to arrange time. And of course, we finally got the time when COVID happened and everybody had nothing but time. So uh, we got to sit down and really dive in deep. I found out a bunch of stuff I knew about him. You know, Aaron was always in one of the like outer circles of my friends, you know, like those people you see a few times a year and the, not the people you see, you know, every week or every month, but, um, you know, he's always been there and I've always, I've known him since, I don't know, I was 15. So I found out a bunch of, you know, you find out people were, super high on opiates when you were having conversations with them and you had no idea, you know, there, there's, <laughs> that's one of many things we discuss in this episode. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I'm not going to hold you any longer. I will talk to you after the episode. Enjoy my conversation with my friend, Aaron. I like just like to keep it loose, so to speak, but I always start out with how I know you. And we met in high school when we were both in uh, two of the best punk bands in the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd say the galaxy, but if you want to go world. Uh, but yeah, we met in high school and then mutual friends and hung out. And afterwards, you guys would be skateboarding and playing guitar and I would be there because I was living with Billy at the time and all good times. And then our paths have kind of intertwined here and there. For the next fifteen years, um, but uh, that I mean that's it. Going back in time though, were you uh, were you born in Michigan? Yeah, I was born in Garden City, Michigan. Oh, is that where you live and, now? Uh, yeah, ironically, <laughs> uh, I live like four blocks from the hospital that I was birthed in, behind my grandmother's house. That's crazy. Yeah, I had no intention, actually, of moving to Garden City. Um, but my brother has a house here, and it's on a little lot. And the house on the other side of that lot, there was an older woman, and she died. And uh, so her kids came over to my brother's house, knocked on his door, and said, do you know anybody who wants to buy a house? And he said, I don't know, let me call my brother. And at the time, um, I was actually paying rent at two apartments. Oh, <laughs> and uh, the house itself was cheaper than one of them. Yeah, and I was like, "Well, this is kind of a no-brainer. Get a house next to my brother's house. We have like our own lot to park whatever we want in because it's an auxiliary lot for a church. Our backyards butt up against each other." So I moved to Garden City. Ended up uh, back where it all started. Yeah, that's that's um, a weird full circle. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is your brother older Despite or younger? My Clarkson upbringing, which you know. Really, I grew up in Clarkson. Yeah. Is your brother older or younger? He's older. I don't even know if I knew you had a brother. Um, how much older? He's technically my half-brother. Okay. Well, then let's let's stay in the past. <laughs> You're born... What are your... Are, do you have any other siblings? No, just him. Um, what do your parents do when you're born, as far as, like, work and whatnot? Well, my father uh, was actually a musician, Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, he had recording studios in our basement. My, our first house was in Clawson. 
when my parents first got their house. Um, and he had a recording studio. He had a cool little drum booth. Uh, people that used to play with Stevie Wonder uh, would come record songs in his basement. I, I used to play with uh, this guy named Ivy. He's the guy who wrote Dancing in the Streets. Huh. What a, uh, fun, what son, a fun connection. <laughs> yeah, I used, to go, I used to go hang out with his kids and play. So, I mean, my dad was steeped in the Detroit music scene at the time. That's crazy. Your dad was my hip mother. and Clawson before it was hip to be hip and Clawson. It's true. There's a picture of him in Clarkston that is very reminiscent of that Bob Seger Stranger in Town poster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's got the, the, the stash and the hair and everything. It's pretty awesome. That's um, funny. But, yeah, my mother sold eyeglasses, and my, my father was trying to get his music career off the ground. And uh, my mom kind of gave him a sort of time frame to be a rock star. Yeah. Um, and he was trying to kind of do a family thing and start a music career. So he had that, that kind of time frame to do it in. Ultimately decided he needed to get a quote unquote real job to support his family. Um, really, I don't think ever quite got over giving up his music dreams. He won a uh, Detroit Emmy. Oh, that's cool. For a song that he wrote, I mean, he he was doing pretty well, but it's I think that that music scene's a difficult thing because it's not necessarily about how talented you are. Oh yeah, no, there's a lot a lot of it's networking by itself, <laughs> as you would know, right? Yeah. And I, so my dad, when I was 16, I said I want to learn to play guitar. He had this beautiful Gibson gold top. It had a green stain from where you you lay your palm, and he took it into the guitar shop and he's like, "Hey, can you guys get this green stain out of the guitar?" And they were like. We can, but that would be insane because it would devalue the guitar by like two thousand dollars. Because yeah. that addition <laughs> of paint hasn't been around since the seventies, and it dates your guitar nice. to that era. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, this beautiful guitar I got to learn on, and he told me, "I'll teach you to play guitar if you promise to never be a professional musician." <laughs> so, so he, I yeah, he had some hangups. Head. He wanted to make sure that you didn't. Follow yes. it. I had it in my head from from when I very first started music that it would only ever be for fun not a career because it was too difficult to path um when when did he get his quote-unquote real job how old were you when that happened do you remember i was still a little kid i'm not really my my time frame is fuzzy at best on the majority of my life yeah so anything early on i go by about like how high my head hit on the screen door <laughs> yeah, i'd say I, about I'm... four feet okay <laughs> I was just curious. Feet, I mean, it's crazy you know? that you didn't start playing guitar till 16. Like, I feel like, you know, as a musician, uh, making my kid, whenever I have kids making them play music is going to be like right there at the top. Like I will shove instruments down their throat at a very early age. So it's, cr did you ever get that pressure from him because he had that music history? No, I think I had the opposite pressure to never do um, it. <laughs> Did not do it. He was very jaded about the industry. And um, I mean, I was in band. They were they were supportive of me being in like band and being around music and playing with music and liking music. But, you know, I mean, I was listening to the Beatles when I was a little kid and yeah. he had very cool tastes and it informed the way I saw music overall. Um, I've always been like that guy who won't listen to the radio like <laughs> fervently. Like, I only want to hear what's not there. Um, 
you know, that kind of stuff. I was a real music snob. I'm less so now, but still pretty much. Yeah. Which is the, um, the irony there is you talk about the Beatles, which is probably like one of the most played bands on any radio. Right. Um, yeah. I, a radio post, uh, let's say eighties. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like some nineties radio. <laughs> I want to jump back a little. Cause when did you, when do you get a half brother? Like when did your parents divorce? Or no, uh, I guess, no, he's older. So did they, that happen? He's before? older. So his dad, uh, his dad and my mom split before my mom met my dad. Okay. How much older is yeah. he? I mean, I, if I was a good brother, I'd have a real solid answer for you. <laughs> I want to say like five years, okay. six years. So was he a part of your like regular life growing up then? He was when we lived in Clawson. When we moved to Clarkston, he didn't want to move so far away from all his friends and everything in Garden City and stuff. Yeah. So um, that's when he kind of left the picture, um, moved in with his dad, and got and they just moved to Garden City. Oh, so he so, like he straight he, up lived with you guys at least part time because of the custody. I'm guessing. He lived with us part time until we moved to Claus or to Clarkston, and then not at all. How old were you when you moved to Clarkston? You're like, what grade were you? Uh, uh, elementary school. Oh, okay. So it was early on. And I was wondering how much, you know, regular influence on your life he had, uh, you know, up until that point. He still was regularly in the picture, but just not on a daily basis. Got it. But he was my big brother, so I looked up to him, and he had long hair, and he had all that stuff. Yeah. So I thought it was cool, and I wanted to be like that. What was uh what was home life like when you got to Clarkston and you're going into like junior high and like your parents did you it sounded like your dad had some resentment over the music stuff I mean was the relationship good other than that or yeah I think overall um, well I didn't learn later till later in life that I lived in a, a alcoholic dysfunctional home okay but it was pretty normal for that right like. Um, my father was a very functioning alcoholic at the time. Um, and it, it wasn't really till later that I picked up on anything about my home life being different than other people's. Um, probably not until like high school, but I would say overall, I mean, I, they cared a lot about me. They both worked a lot. They both provided really well. There's just instances where like, I found out later, like, it would be like, oh, mom and I are at the baseball game, but he's not here because he's not feeling well. And I found out later it's because he was too drunk. Got to go. So they covered it up pretty well when you were a kid. Yeah, it was very much a not not really spoken thing. Gotcha. Do you think, yeah. looking back, like, do you think that's probably better that way? No. No? No, I think that, no. Uh, there's a lot of addiction on that side of the family. Yeah. Um my grandfather didn't drink at all, but uh, he was a minister. But the his children on that side of the family all have some sort of addiction, some more than others. And I think that, you know, when you hide that stuff, all information can only help you. Yeah, I'm just thinking so from was, a from a standpoint of a child that might not understand, like, what's going on with dad? Why is dad acting crazy? Or, you know? Yeah, I, I don't think it's ever better to hide. Okay. Things. Yeah, it, it sets up a 
it, it sets up a because what I started doing later on in life with with relationships and things is I hid things for the good of others. Yeah, which creates shame and codependence and all sorts of that fun stuff. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I get that. that like you feel are justified. Yeah, because you're protecting someone. Well, rationalization is part times. of addiction. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I mean, obviously, that part's coming in my story. I think if if everything was out on the table more, I would have understood my relationship to addiction more and would have probably seen some signs earlier. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to, I guess I'm playing devil's advocate. Like, I always knew from as far back as I can remember is my dad's an alcoholic. And I don't think it impacted... It definitely early on, like, I didn't drink or do anything, and I knew, like, I was, it was drilled into my head, if you try anything, you're going to get addicted to it. And I was like, yeah. And then, you know, eventually I drank and did other stuff. And it's like, oh, you know, looking back now at 37, I can be like, oh, you were right. I shouldn't have done any of that. <laughs> But at the time, I mean, I don't know. I think when you're in 21, 22, you just think you're invincible in a lot of ways. But anyway. Yeah, it might not matter either way. It seems to me that most people have to, uh, no matter how many signposts are pointing to the danger, you're still going to trip over those rocks on your own anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, yeah, let's go back to high school. You're, you're in a band. How are you doing school-wise? Were you a good student or was that just... I got good grades. <laughs> uh, <laughs> regarding being a good student, um, I high school for me was more of a, a social club, yeah. a place of learning. Uh, I didn't really care much for what I was being taught. Um, it wasn't really that interesting to me. So what I would do is be there as little as possible uh, before tests, cram all the information in my brain, get an A and immediately forget everything. Um, I kind of finagled my way around, you know, by uh, the last two years of high school, I was going to OTC culinary for half the day. Oh, I didn't know you were doing that stuff that early. That's cool. Yeah, I went to the Vogue Center, mostly because I wanted to get out of there. So my, you know, my, uh, I'm very much a hands-on learning person. I like doing things and seeing things and hearing things. I don't like to sit there and read about things. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I like to work with my hands. I like to do things that are physically creative. So, um, you know, for me, once I got to, to Vogue, I was like the star student in the class. The teachers loved me still to this day. They, they still ask me to come on their board and do their reviews at parts of the year. And they send me some of their better students for my staff. I have a really good relationship with OTC. That's awesome. Um, but, you know, I kind of got it. So first half of the day, I didn't have to go to high school. I could go to OTC. It started later, and it was less hours. Yeah. That was also a big selling point to me. Yeah, so I was by jealous of you guys. Year, <laughs> <laughs> by senior year, it's funny because it's, it's almost usually seen as like the troubled teens place to go. Yeah. Folk. And there's a lot, of, a lot of us selling drugs and things there. But by senior year, I was taking vocational class. For the first half of the day, I had gotten an independent study in a class called Words to Film, which was just. <laughs> I remember uh, that I class. Was supposed to watch movies. Yeah. Uh, and, and really what it was is uh, the teacher, first of all, was pretty hot. Uh, Miss, she ended up being Miss Gingel. I don't remember her maiden name. 
Shout out to Miss Gingel. Um, <laughs> but I but I used to like basically go in, try and flirt with her as like a idiot uh, high school kid would. And then she'd be like, check me in. And then I'd go to the library, which would mean I would go wherever I wanted, usually not school. Yeah. And then I also convinced them to let me drop math because at this point it was understood I was going to culinary school after. So I'm like, hey, you know, I got enough math. I don't need any more math. How about I take this wines and spirits course at OCC instead two nights a week? <laughs> so, so I dropped math. All I was taking my senior year was words to film and French. And what it meant was I literally only had to really be in high school for about two hours a day. Nice. <laughs> also, I was able to sign myself out. I got my parents to fill that out. So, I mean, basically, I wanted if I, I was there if I wanted to be there and wanted to hang out with people. And if I wasn't, I wasn't there. Nice. Did they, and they let you take a wine and spirits class? And they let me drink at OCC. <laughs> too funny i'm saying like vodka tastings on a tuesday night when you're a senior in high school wow so and i and i would drink on the way yeah i was gonna say let's segue into that when do you first start drinking i remember the first time i drank was and we took we went to the liquor cabinet and we took every kind of liquor his dad had (laughs) and we poured a little bit of each into a glass yeah so it was like amaretto, tequila. There was a uh, schnapps. There was something real minty. Yeah. Uh, whiskey. So we just mix all those things and we poured it into a glass so his dad wouldn't notice stuff was missing, and chugged it, and um, got super duper sick. Yeah. That was my first experience. My next experience with it was with John Shorsh, and we went to a party store in Pontiac. We found, I think, a homeless guy outside to buy us two 45 Old English double malts each. Got this guy to give us, to buy us the beer. Then the guy got in the car, and he wanted us to take him places. And the only way we got him out of the car was telling him we were going by the police station. (laughs) And in his inebriated state, he was like, I don't want to go to no police station. So we said, okay, well, you better get out then. Uh, So I remember slamming two 45 OE double malts uh, and then walking around with them back to, to John's house. Vomited all over myself at some point in the sleeping bag at night. Next morning, I called my dad and said, I can't go to marching band today. I don't feel good. And he said, you're going. And he came and got me. And I remember him taking me there and asking me, he's like, I, I just want you to be honest with me. I'm not going to be mad did you guys drink last night? And I said, no. And he's like, I'm not going to be mad at you. I just want you to be honest with me. And I just kept denying it. And I saw the disappointment in his face. Cause obviously I smelled like a yeah. fucking liquor store, yeah. you know? So he dropped me off and I, he made me march around that parking lot all day in the hot sun in the summer with a hangover to learn my lesson. Um, but I didn't, <laughs> jokes on you dad um jokes on you i kept drinking (laughs) so that was you you were in high school already at that point right when you start drinking yes okay Uh, and so i uh yeah that was probably freshman year i started drinking and by sophomore year i had a fake id 
also I had like a five o'clock shadow when I was like 15. So by the time I was 16, I was buying, like I had, they regularly knew me at, at certain party stores and uh, gas stations. Like I didn't even get carded anymore. I would just walk in and buy whole parties worth of beer. You said culinary school was like what you were deciding to do after high school. Did that end up happening? Like when you graduated high school, did you end up going to culinary school? Yeah, I went to the CIA in Hyde Park, New York, Culinary nice. Institute of America. Um, big, beautiful Jesuit monastery right on Hudson River. What's that like um, to leave Michigan and go live in New York? <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. All I ever wanted to do was leave Michigan. Yeah. So, I mean, I uh, got in the car, drove there, and didn't really consider ever coming back to Michigan, honestly. The school was incredible. I mean, it was like Hogwarts for cooking. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. You felt, and they gave you your knife kit, and you felt like you were being handed this secret tool chest. And like everything was very arcane and classical French and serious. And at the same time, it was college. But like instead of a kegger, you had all these fancy wines that somebody lifted out of a back room somewhere that they worked and cheeses and, you know, fruit and salami. Yeah. And like, so it was like we had these very high-class college parties considering the, the food and beverage, but they were still a bunch of college kids. So a huge culture shift. And then I imagine you're in there. You're also in New York, what, right after 9-11? I was on, a, I was on an internship when 9-11 hit. That's crazy. I was back in Michigan, actually. I, I ended up on three different internships. You're only supposed to do one. <laughs> so how long are you in Culinary Institute? Uh, so I was there uh, from 2000 when we graduated. I went straight out there. I think right around 2004, I finished my bachelor's. Um, there, was a, there was a gap in there because my first externship was down in the Florida Keys. And uh, the chef there was just a tyrant. He was a, a cokehead. Uh, the cocaine down in the Florida Keys was fresh off the boat, not cut, not what anyone here would consider cocaine. And he was just a maniac. And I saw him. I mean, he would literally throw pans at your head. Um, you know, the one my last straw day was some kid was heating up risotto, and he said, "Hey, is that risotto hot?" And the kid said, "Yes, chef." He takes the risotto and he flings it on the kid's arm. And he said, that's not hot. And he takes his freshly poured cup of coffee and throws it on the kid's face and said, that's fucking hot. Get off my line. Jesus. And I was like, mm, like this guy's going to go off on me one day and I'm not going to respond well and I'm going to get kicked out of school. So I need to get out of here. So I, I contacted the school and I told him I'm terminating my externship early. We got the guy, him and a couple other people from the school that were down there with me, got him pulled off the externship list for a while, but he got put back on. And I uh, came back to Michigan to try and sort things out. Ended up doing another two months. It's only supposed to be a four-month externship. So I did two months in Florida, another two months at a, at a restaurant in Michigan that never ended up getting approved. And so the culinary suit's like, yeah, you have no externship credits you need to do a full one somewhere <laughs> so i was kind of like fuck you guys fuck all this i'm going snowboarding <laughs> and i found a place in aspen valley uh called snow mass club and i i went out there and uh 
was one of the best experiences of my life. I was a whole season out there. I got that you got a full mountain, four mountain pass to all Aspen's properties. I caught every powder day. Um, I broke my foot on the first powder day of the year there, not snowboarding or doing anything cool, actually doing something really stupid. Go and on. Then, <laughs> <laughs> you want to know that one? Sure. <laughs> All right, so you know at the end of Breakfast Club? Where he uh, throws his hand up in the air? Yeah, and they jump in the air and they yeah. do like the pause yeah. in the air. So it was a powder day and I was standing out on the deck and I was excited to see my first fresh, you know, out west powder. And no one else was even there. I decided to do a Breakfast Club-esque jump in the air freeze frame. <laughs> Yeah. In real life, yeah. And when I came down, I was wearing chef clogs, and I came down on the side of my chef clog, and it went sideways. I landed on my le- left side of my left foot, and it cracked the the bone there. So I came back in, and I was trying to walk it off. And I'm I'm in the back kitchen, like still prepping and cooking, and I'm I'm sort of I have my hands on each prep table, kind of limping along, trying to make it through the kitchen. And the chef's like. Uh, Aaron, what's going on? I'm like, nothing. It's fine. And he said, walk over here. And so I start like putting my hands on the tables and he's like, just walk over here. And I put weight on it and I just fell to the ground. He's like, you need to go to the doctor. Yeah. So, so I went to the doctor and he said, I'm going to put you in a cast. Unfortunately, you're not going to be able to snowboard this year. And I said, absolutely not. Um, and he said, what do you mean? And I said, there's no way I'm not snowboarding. A snowboard boots like a cast. I'll be fine. Give me a walking cast. So he gave me a plastic walking cast. I wore that. I still went snowboarding all the time. To this day, my foot still hurts occasionally. <laughs> uh, but I don't regret it. I mean, it was an amazing experience. I can't imagine being there that whole season and not snowboarding. When do you just, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. There's no good way to segue into it except for when you talked about cocaine in florida but when do, when do you start uh experimenting in in that arena of uh, when do you step drugs? up from alcohol <laughs> so you know it's funny i kind of have thought about this quite a bit of like the turning points um so at first it was alcohol. I never much cared for marijuana. I have what I would describe as a perma high brain already. It's like hyper kind of goes off in any direction anyway. Yeah. Um, so when I smoke weed, it really just is terrifying and I feel very uncomfortable and a lot of anxiety. So I never liked that. What I did really like was painkillers. And I did have some friends that were like, Hey man, you know, this stuff's way cheaper and way stronger. And what they were talking about was heroin. And I had in my mind, like, there's no way I'll ever try that. I can't become yeah. a heroin addict. Like, heroin's the big one. The, the big, big one that you don't try. Well, when did you start taking uh, recreational painkillers? Uh, well, so, when I was 16, um, they, my, my doctor, for, who had been my allergist since I was a real little kid, was listening to my heart one day and he said, uh, you know, something sounds off about your heart. Um, I want you to go get this checked out. So we went to a cardiologist and the cardiologist couldn't find anything. He said, I'm going to send you to a pediatric cardiologist because he's like, something sounds weird, but I don't know what it is. 
they end up figuring out that I have a hole in between two of the chambers of my heart. What? And that, yeah, so, so basically my heart was pumping half oxygenated blood um, throughout my body all the time. Like one side of my heart was twice as big as the other side. Basically, they said if I had been into sports and I wasn't so lazy, I would have just died one day. Jesus. Like one of those kids that just collapses on the basketball field or court. Yeah. That's how little <laughs> into sports I am. <laughs> the, the basketball rink. Yeah. Um, so, so basically, when they did the heart surgery, I remember coming out of surgery. and I So had wait, you had heart surgery when you were 16? Yeah, that was the second major surgery. I actually had cancer when I was three. Whoa, you're brushing past a lot of things here. <laughs> oh, I forgot that. That's crazy. Um, I've had three major close call life death medical instances. Um, so the first one, do you want me to finish the heart surgery thing and then go back? Sure. All right, so... So I'm laying there after surgery and I got this button and every time I press the button, it gives me morphine. So I'm pressing the button basically constantly and they take the button away from me (laughs) and everybody comes in and they laugh and they're like, oh, he's so stoned and this and that. Well, talking to my therapist later, that initial hit of morphine and how much I liked it sort of carved that pathway in my attic brain. Yeah. So that the next time I tried something, it was like this beautiful fixes everything drug. Yeah. So the heart surgery really was the catalyst. It was at 16 because I remember trying to drive with a seatbelt on across the, the fresh stitches on my chest. But but yeah, it was after that that all of a sudden I, I found that alcohol is fine, but painkillers are really where it's at and alcohol was really just a thing that I drank to enhance the painkiller feeling. Gotcha. Um, to jump back, uh, when I was three, um, I did have testicular cancer. Jesus. Um, You had testicular cancer before you really had testicles. Yeah. That's crazy. We didn't know that we didn't know my mom was a, um, most likely an undiagnosed diabetic. Okay. We found out later in life that she was a diabetic and and when diabetics have kids like they tend to grow quickly and have some issues. So the heart thing and the cancer thing could be attributed to that. There's no way to really know, but I was 11 and a half pounds when I was born. Wow. So more than likely they played a role. But yeah, I had cancer. I was too young to really remember any of that. I do know that the smell of a hospital makes me feel comforted that's yeah um, that's that's unusual nor like generally I spent, speaking I, sp- <laughs> I spent a lot of time in them yeah um so i have some major scars from when they check my lymph nodes and i have some major scars from my heart surgery and then later on if just get the medical stuff out of the way um <laughs> the first time i quit heroin was because i had been you know just doing my normal thing drinking I used to roll with about 200,000 milligram Vicodin in my pocket at any given time. I would sell half of them and take the other half. I was up to about 10,000 milligram of Vicodin a day. Jeez. Um, and 
So one day I wake up after a night of just normal partying and drug use and I feel sick. So I go and vomit and the toilet is just filled with red and also like these chunks are coming up of what I can best describe is like, it looked like my liver. I'm like, did I just puke up my liver? Is it possible to puke up your liver? <laughs> and then I realized it's not possible. <laughs> no, not, not medically possible. <laughs> so, so I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I'm like, well, I did drink some red wine last night. Maybe this is just red wine. Yeah. I have the foresight to grab some of these chunks out of the toilet and put them in a Ziploc bag. Oh, wow. Cause I didn't know what they were. Yeah. Um, so before I flushed it, I did that. And then my plan was, okay, well I don't feel well. I'm going to call my neighbor, see if she's around. Cause I don't really feel like I could drive to the hospital. Um, if she's not, I'll just take a nap and see if I feel better. She was supposed to be working that day. She happened to come home early. And, um, when I, when she came over to the house and saw this bag of what ended up being coagulated blood in my hand. Yeah. Um, she said, I'm taking you to the urgent care. We go to urgent care. They say, yeah, you need to go to the like emergency room. So we go to the emergency room at the hospital. My mom works at selling eyeglasses and, uh, they bring me in and I'm sitting in the ER and they got this little like KFC bucket thing for hospitals that I'm vomiting blood into. Yeah. So, so I, so I filled it up and the, uh, the nurse came and emptied it into the sink. And then my mom came down and she's like, what's going on? I'm like, I have no idea. Puking in a bucket. She's terrified. Nurse comes, I fill it up again. Nurse comes in, dumps it in the sink. And my mom like raises her eyebrow. Third time the nurse comes in and goes to dump it in the sink. My mom goes, why don't you leave that for the doctor to see? So the doctor comes in and his eyes get huge. And he's like, where's all that blood coming from? And my mom said, he's filled three of those. So they stop everything. They bring the emergency, the, the operating equipment to my ER room. Jeez. Um, and they start performing this ER surgery in that room. Now there's a part of this story where I had told the nurse prior that I did heroin. Now my mom's in the room and the nurse is asking me the same question about drugs. And I keep saying no. I keep saying no, and she keeps asking me, trying to get me to say it. And I'm like, I'm not going to say I do heroin in front of my mom. Like, yeah. like, that's not happening. The point of that being, my high tolerance for sedatives meant that about halfway through the surgery, I woke up to tubes down my throat. And I just remember punching out as hard as I could and landing in this really soft, cushy stomach. And it must have been that poor surgeon that I just gut punched in the middle of trying to save my life. Really sweet, man. I feel really bad about it now. But the weirdest part of that experience is that, you know how like people describe that white light? Yeah. Or their ascent into heaven and things? Yeah. So I had an experience that was, I would say, only could be described as the opposite of that, <laughs> um, which was I felt as if I was, I had basically two arms underneath my arms dragging me backwards down a deep black hole. And that the reality of the light and everything in front of me just kept getting smaller and further away. 
Huh. Even to, to mention it gives me chills. So at the time, I had a very Christian upbringing, and I, I do believe that a lot of these things are mental constructs based on how we are taught to perceive reality, but I don't know what it was, but it scared the fucking shit out of me. Because I woke up and I was like, I'm going to hell. That's what this is. Uh, at, the, at the time, I was very much a believer in what that meant. And um, I just was like, I got to change everything. What? So what ended up happening? Was like your... This was a wake-up call. I got drugged down a hallway to hell. Did your... Was it your stomach was bleeding or... Yeah, so the pills, the way it was described to me is I, I had like this perfect storm. I had this hiatal hernia in my stomach, which is like a shelf. The pills hit the shelf and would chemically and mechanically, as they break down, start to burn a hole in the stomach lining, yeah. which happened to be directly across from an artery, which one day through probably the initial vomiting of the night before, torn open filled my body with blood that I then vomited out Jeez. for the rest of the day. That's insane. I lost I lost about uh, three quarters of the blood in my body. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, It's and it's funny you interpret that as, like, getting dragged to hell. Because I, I feel like the another side of interpreting that would be, like, it's not your time to die, so they're pulling you away from the light. Like, don't go towards it. You still have more to do. Hmm. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying, except for, you know how there's a feeling tone around experiences? Yeah. yeah. It wasn't that feeling tone. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I mean, I guess, well, the middle of that, so you start in high school taking painkillers, and when does it escalate to, like, flat-out heroin? Um, it's hard to say. One day, uh, I just didn't have any painkillers, and people I knew were getting heroin, and they were like, dude, you don't even have to shoot it, you just snort it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I don't, it would have been probably 16, 17, though. Oh, so that early? Yeah. When did the whole thing with your stomach happen? That was in my 20s. Okay. So, you're, I mean, you're, so you're essentially doing opiates to some degree for what half a decade oh, long long yeah i mean that was after so that would have been after i graduated so that would have been like oh five so like uh 97 to 05 yeah so for quite a while was a successful heroin user <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> so, and not just heroin i mean cocaine crack yeah um anything just you're full-on addict yeah, anything that made me, that I could put in my body and I would feel a change within a few seconds, I was easily addicted to. Yeah. When, uh, what does recovery look like that right at the beginning there? Um, I didn't do any real recovery until, you know, like I was forced into the, the program AA early on with my first DUI in my 20s, okay. but I didn't really go i went because i had to have a sheet signed out yeah and all i was doing was taking a break from alcohol till i was away from the court system's grasp so right. i had no intent on quitting uh recovery didn't come till 30 periodically i would stop drinking for a while get healthy get my stuff together start to drink again drink kind of normal for a while 
eventually have bad hangovers, still have a lot to do because I was building a career at this point. I started my first restaurant at 25. Yeah. Uh, so from 25 to 30, I was a professional while I was uh, an addict. You know, that period of time, I did not, I never went back to heroin. It was just pills, but because I knew that if I went back to heroin, there would be, I would never come back. Um, but I have, I have just zero tolerance for the hangover when I'm trying to get stuff done. So I would start the day with a couple of Vicodin and then beer really sets that Vicodin off a little bit or a couple shots. And then all of a sudden you're just back into that cycle of feeling good again. And then the next day you feel like shit. So you just keep going. Yeah. You know, it was my, I used to call Vicodin my performance enhancing drug. Um, cause I was super, I was really good at working. I was really good with people. You know, you would never know. I mean, I, I, could I don't think I knew. The, no, no, no one knew. I was, you know, I was a, uh, people's boss. Yeah. Um, you know, I was getting shit done, you know, doing TV spots sometimes yeah. after drinking, you know, it's, uh, in the morning I'm saying like morning television. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I was very good at just being normal while having substance in me. It wasn't until 30. So we had just diners, drive-ins and dives was getting set to air. And the day it aired that night before I got busted for my second DUI. So the day it airs, there's a, there's a huge party at, uh, the union and everybody's there and I'm not anywhere. Uh, cause I'm in Oakland County jail. So I end up having to be in jail throughout at that point. What was the height of my career? You know, Guy Fieri and Kid Rock. It was a Kid Rock episode, yeah. by the way. So they still play that stuff all the time. Yeah. Um, I used to have that on my DVR for quite some time. Yeah. I mean, it still comes on and people are like, Hey, I saw you on TV. I'm like, yeah, that's from a long time ago. <laughs> um, basically I'm, I'm, in Oakland County Jail, the restaurants hit super hard. We got a line out the door, wrapped around the door all the time. To be fair, uh, you know, own, the owners of the restaurants at the time, yeah, super supportive, would call me every day, would fill me in, like, didn't say, they just said, you know, you got to get better and get out here so you can be with us for yeah. this. Really helped me through all that. And I wrote uh, the menu for Vincetta Garage in Oakland County Jail. Wow. So I spent, you know, you're sitting there eating the worst food that a human's ever served. How long were you in jail for a DUI? Uh, I was in there for a month. Whoa. What? Yeah. Well, I, so I got out. Okay. The full story is I got out and then I screwed up probation and they, they revoked my bond. Got it. So then I was in there for. 30 days was just the amount of time it took for my hearing to come up. Okay. So yeah, it wasn't like I only spent the night in jail that day, but normally you're out on bond and then you get a rain and then, you know, all the stuff yeah, yeah, comes yeah. after. But I ended up in jail for, for a month. And when I went in, I actually went in with, on withdrawals from Vicodin. Um, it wasn't until about seven days in jail that I realized I had a drinking problem again. <laughs> It wasn't until everything was out of my system yeah, for sure. that I really seriously was like, hey, maybe I really have to stop. I mean, was that 30 days clean? Was that like the longest you were clean in, in what, a decade or? No, there had been full six-month periods where I just didn't drink and was 
getting healthier or like I, you know, I, I mean, I didn't always, I, it was kind of up and down. Okay. You know, that was a forced sobriety. Then when I came out, it was like, basically I begged and pleaded for the judge to, to let me go back out and live my life and fix everything. Yeah. I wrote this big whole speech and everything. I mean, jail was just a terrible place to be. Cause you're like, it's like you're in reality, but you're in this alternate universe and you can still see everything happening, but you can't touch it or be a part of it. Yeah. And, and everybody in there is just like watching Jerry Springer. It's just the most sad, boring. It wasn't like, you know, I'm in there with nonviolent criminals, right? It's not like scared straight. It's yeah. more like, Hey, trade me your, sweet roll like I was trading sweet rolls for eggs so I could at least have a real food but the funny thing is I wrote the menu for Vincetta while I was there I was I was constantly like daydreaming of like these best flavor combinations so I was torturing myself but also coming up with really interesting food to yeah. eat and there was a dish at Oakland County Jail called that all the inmates called Noodle Burger and it's effectively like macaroni noodles in like standing water with grayish ground meat and zero seasoning. It was the worst thing, right? Yeah. Just awful to eat. So I, I called up the owners and I was like, Hey, I want to put a dish on the menu that's called noodle burger, but it's going to be like the bomb ass version, like of a baked cheeseburger macaroni with house made bacon hamburger helper. Yeah. And they're like, that's awesome. So I put it on the menu, called it Noodle Burger, and it's my inside joke about that whole period of my life. I'll have people, like, I'll have guards come in from Oakland County Jail and ask the ask the staff back then, like, hey, uh, and they're like, yeah, yeah, it's exactly <laughs> what you think it is. I just, do, I don't know, I like that stuff. Yeah. I feel like little it's inside that kind joke. of quirky little stuff that, the Easter eggs that people don't know why they like it because well, they don't get the joke, but they know there's something different about it. I also think, uh, and I, I projecting cause this is kind of how I, I work. You'd like to leave some sort of little legacy in things, even if people don't know that's what you're doing. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. I, when I was a teen, when I was not a teenager, but when I was like a super drunk 22 year old, I, I would carve my initials in a certain way in, in multiple places. Still in the union bathroom. I see they're still there because I'm tall as fuck and you can't erase it. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, uh, stupid little, I mean, mine was destructive and yours was creative, but still, so, <laughs> I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's, it's all, it's all our vain attempt at, uh, taking a stab back at our own and impending impermanence and, uh, the fact that everything we do can and will be erased within probably a century of our death. Do you end up, seriously getting sober after jail yes i had no choice so uh the judge basically said here's your probation it's two years long if you so much as miss an appointment you know if you screw up at all you're going to prison for a year with no time served <laughs> like yeah. no credit uh so full year in prison and basically i see that as okay well your life's over at that point yeah. You know, you got to start fresh. The TV shows are done. The restaurant group can't be expected to wait a year for you. Your wife will probably leave you. Who knows what will happen to your dog? You know, it's like everything is sitting right there. You have no option but to 
try and figure it out. So then I realized, okay, I really got to do this. Are you married at that point? Yeah. I didn't, I don't even know if I knew you got married. Yeah. I was married for seven years. I know who you were with. I didn't know you guys are married. I didn't think, um, so she, did she know about all the, uh, addiction and use substance use? No, not really. So you hid that from her too? Yeah. Yeah. She was very surprised when I got pulled over and didn't come home that night. Yeah. I was really good at hiding everything. So when you start going through recovery, what does that look like? Like meetings, therapy, combination of all of the above? Like... Yeah, I basically grabbed onto every possible life raft I could get my hands on. Um, I started seeing a counselor seriously this time. Yeah. You know, previously I went because I had to and I never, I just, it was so stupid. I basically sat there and stared at the woman for an hour once a week or whatever. Yeah. This time I really got into therapy I uh, got into AA. Um, I started working out. I would I would walk. Uh, this is in the winter. I would get up at 5 a.m. and walk to Lifetime Fitness and train in their Alpha program, which was effectively their version of CrossFit at the time. You know, I basically found this system. You know, eventually, what it became was this mind, body, spirit system of meditation uh because it's my belief that meditation or i'm sorry addiction really starts in the brain right once the substance is out of your body it's really just a thought problem yeah Um, that's how you get into it to begin with right like i mean the root of my stuff is is like the lack of emotional intimacy combined with abandonment issues and like a boatload of shame from trauma (laughs) yeah so. Yeah. Um, I've got a lot of those things. <laughs> those <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, it's pretty, pretty, uh, assumed running theme of any, any addict is going to have shame and trauma in their past. And that's uh, absolutely always a wonderful trigger. Um, and, yeah. And, and so, I mean, the meditation came because I didn't know how to sit in that fire in your belly that you get when something's telling you, you have to have this thing. Yeah. Uh, but what I learned was if you just sit with the thoughts and the feelings long enough, they will go away on their own and all you have to do is nothing. Yeah. I eventually ended up helping to start the, uh, Detroit chapter of refuge recovery, which was a Buddhist based recovery program. I found that Buddhism for me was more of a, it was more about, um, self-study study of the mind. Uh, study of your conditioning, looking inward and um, trying to f- figure things out. To me, it's more of a course of action than a religion even. And it gave me all the tools I needed to kind of free myself from this addictive brain. That combined with CrossFit on a regular basis, my counselor, getting involved with other addicts, uh, just basically taking that obsessive compulsive brain and that unnatural energy and channeling it towards something very positive and structuring my days so that I had to eat well, I had to sleep enough. I had to get up and go to bed on time, you know, giving myself that discipline, uh, martial arts. I got back into martial arts, sword arts that connects mind, body and spirit all in one. Right. So I got my therapist working on my mind, um, I got my Zen practice working on my spirit. 
I got my CrossFit working on my body, and then I got the martial arts, which ties them all together, and then the support and community of other addicts trying all for this sort of same goal, this tribe of people trying to get better, that became my life. My program, my discipline became my life, and it transformed me as a person physically, mentally. Challenges I, I took as fun things to overcome now. I felt unstoppable. I My body, at one point, my hands were calloused from my palm up to the tips of my fingers because I was doing a pull-up challenge that was like 5,000 pull-ups in three months. <laughs> and that's the kind of shit I liked. Yeah. Um, I got I got into GORUCK training, which is like military-based group training. It just completely changed everything about me and uh, gave, gave me a way to channel this energy. And then I started helping other people with it. Do you ever... And obviously on an, on an emotional level, not on like a, a physiological level, but do you ever get to a point with something like CrossFit to where you were kind of just exchanging one addiction for another? Was that, was that ever reaching that level where you were doing it to a point where like this might be unhealthy or impact other relationships I have or anything like that? Yes. I do that with everything. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, but there is a balance to be struck. Usually what I find is initially it's very easy to get caught up in being an addict about it and it being, it can get to an unhealthy level for various reasons. Let's say with CrossFit, you're not taking enough rest days and you're wearing your body out. Um, with kombucha, man, I started drinking so much kombucha that my teeth hurt cause all the acid, in it. <laughs> you know, so you know, initially it's like this high from a new thing yeah. and then eventually the, the novelty wears off and if you stick with it and don't just drop it for the novelty of a different thing, um, you start to end up with a core set of balanced, life-changing things. Yeah. Yeah. But addicts will always be like that and it's it's in our nature. Yeah, addicts will always be addicts. I mean, it's just a matter of... Like, I, I suffer a lot from like some behavioral addictions and that's always been something I have to be conscious of. Like, am I, you know, am I playing video games in, in replacement mm -hmm. of something else? Um, cause if you look at the, like the, uh, psychological things behind addiction and, and, and as far as, you know, the definition of addiction and is it impacting, uh, your relationships? Is it, essentially turning you off emotionally to being able to be in touch with your own feelings. And, uh, I often have to ask myself that if I get too much into an activity, because I can be yeah. like, Oh yeah, this is getting from, I like this to This is unhealthy. <laughs> I have a little set of kind of points that I look for to know if something is becoming an addiction for me rather than something I like. Uh, the first one is that, uh, it's something that you normally do alone, right? Yeah. Um, the next thing is it's something that maybe you're untruthful with yourself or untruthful with others about how often or how much you're doing it. Yeah. The third is um, it affects your ability to do other things in your life that you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the fourth is you want to do it less, but you can't seem to. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a, that's that's the definition right there. <laughs> yeah. So to go so to go with your video game example, 
um, you know, if you're up till 4 a.m. playing video games, you're not making it to CrossFit. Yeah, that's true. You know, and if you get on a video game, you're like, I'm going to play it for an hour and you end up playing it for six hours. Yeah. Well, you want to do it less, but you can't. Yeah. And if your boss is like, hey, you look kind of tired and you're like, well, I could tell him. I went to bed at six because I was playing Call of Duty all night. Or I could tell him, yeah, I'm just really, I'm really busy. Yeah. You know, now you're lying. You know, so it really works. It doesn't have to be a what would be normally deemed a negative activity. It could yeah, be no, absolutely. as innocent as anything. I'm a big advocate for uh, behavioral addictions because, you know, well, I don't know if you know, but like the DSM only recognizes gambling as a behavioral addiction. Whereas like in today's age, especially with internet and social media um, and, you know, porn sex relationships like there's a billion things you can be addicted to um at a level that while no you're not going to get like stomach ulcers you can still like completely fucking decimate your entire life so yeah no absolutely 100 percent. and so it's my belief that the addictive brain can be a virtue in that evolutionarily I try to always look back evolutionarily. It's my belief that like our modern age is not necessarily, things have changed so quickly that our evolution hasn't necessarily kept up, yeah. right? If you look back when, like let's say you're a caveman, right? We picture a caveman and you're an addict. You're the alpha male. You got all the food, all the sex, all the shelter, right? You're, you're out there with an unnatural drive getting these things that feel good. Yeah. You take that brain and put it in a world of uh, Doritos where things are designed in a lab to be addictive. Yeah. Uh, internet pornography where there's parts of your brain that are triggered where back in caveman times, you might see two women an entire day. Now you can see 50 in two minutes. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then heroin, forget about it. Right. So we live in this world of, of, of uh, basically lab-designed addiction in order to capitalize on addicts specifically, oh, but yeah. everybody in general, right? Yeah. You've seen, my favorite is, uh, there's a South Park episode about video game or the phone games. Yeah. yeah. Where, they, where, they, where they go into this spiel about, hey, look, the alcohol industry makes 90% of its sales off one percent of its users yeah and that's how those in-app games work because who the fuck is going to pay thirty dollars for a game that's free yeah well all those app designers are they get they get people involved that work on addiction so they can give like in the opposite way that they should <laughs> and get people mm -hmm. they design those specifically to trigger uh, addictive behavior absolutely it's like yeah. yeah there's there's a bunch of studies done it, it drives me crazy but i mean what can you do about it <laughs> Well, so, so then, so then to that end, if we can see our addictive brain as the virtue that it is and steer it toward the things that we really want in life, uh, that unnatural energy can be harnessed and directed and very helpful. Yeah, I can see that. Just, uh, you're also talking to a guy who's slept four hours a night for the past probably month. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, let's, let's fast forward a little cause obviously you've been out of the uh, union joints for a while and, and now you're working on a, a new venture that I've been following via Instagram stories. But what, uh, what are you working on now? 
the, and when's when, when will society be back to normal to some degree to where we can see what's going on? Well, the second answer. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, it it became apparent to me that my industry in particular, the restaurant industry, was filled with addiction to a higher extent than other industries. And I believe it's because it presents an alternative lifestyle. Um, it presents, you know, a way for, for it to be okay to work until one, hang out till four, wake yeah. up at noon. Yeah. Uh, cause these are the things I found appealing about it when I was 16. I ran, I read Anthony Bourdain's kitchen confidential and I was like, Oh shit, you can do heroin and be a chef. I want to, that's for me. <laughs> uh, you know, which leads to the point of not only is it acceptable behavior in the restaurant industry, it's, it's often encouraged. Yeah. Um, we turn and burn people as long as they're showing up and kicking ass. We don't necessarily care what they do outside of work. Um, I'm saying the restaurant industry as a whole, not me specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, it became apparent to me that you know we we, we just have a higher instance of addiction, and uh, also in part, I think a lot of creative people seem to be addictive as well. And that lends itself to cooking. It's a way to be creative and make money based on merit, not necessarily who you know. That's the beauty of cooking as an art is it, if someone puts your food in their mouth and it's good, you will do well. <laughs> you don't have to know somebody. Yeah. I was helping a lot of people who were in the restaurant world to get better through what worked for me. And I started thinking maybe my path needs to be more tied to that than just opening restaurants and making good food. Maybe maybe my calling is really more on the end of helping these people who are in the industry and maybe thinking about quitting to get better or in the industry and frustrated that they can't get better but don't want to leave, showing them that there's another way to live that's sustainable and they'll actually become better chefs and we can still have this great camaraderie. And basically, let's be honest, addictive rush of service together and and then come out the other side as just kind of more whole human beings so to me it became this project that will be a, a restaurant that will help people who are struggling with addiction to sort of come in get on their feet a little bit help them with the things that helped me get them to where they're thriving and sort of push them out the other side and welcome some new people in Nice. Um, so that's what I'm working on right now. It's still in its infancy. I, I did find the right partnership right now. Yeah. Um, so what we're doing is they have a restaurant currently. I'm helping to get them solidified so that we can go on to start some more projects, one of which being uh, Vigilante, which is, which is my project that I've been – I've kind of had it in the works for about three years. And you'd be surprised – how many people tell me, yeah, that's a great idea, man. We really believe in it, but this, but that, but that, Yeah. you know? And, um, so it just took a really long time. It took a lot of meetings to finally find some people that really understood what I was trying to do and really wanted to do it for the same reasons I wanted to do it. Yeah. I don't want to overstate it, but it's more of a humanitarian effort than a restaurant. Let's put it that yeah. I, I mean, I can tell from how you talk about it that that's, that's the goal while well, you still get to do what you love doing with the food too. Um, yeah. 
but I, what's it like being in that business like right now <laughs> with COVID? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's upside down. I mean, uh, you know, we're in a unique position where, where the restaurant I'm with was already doing a full renovation. Yeah. So we probably wouldn't be full open anyway. Uh, we're lucky in that regard. We're getting geared up to do the curbside. I know some places are back open. Honestly, dude, to be very frank, I think the long lasting effect of COVID is going to be on the American work ethic more than uh, flu symptoms. Uh, you know, it's, we have a lot of people that, a lot of people are making more money right now a week for not doing anything than they were busting their ass every day. Yeah, which says a lot about <laughs> minimum wage and the <laughs> cost of living and the wealth gap, uh, among many other things. There's yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a whole other <laughs> conversation. But but the the reality of it is is the people I know that are open are having a really hard time. Cause people will come back, start working and be like, man, I don't want to do this. You know, it's, uh, when I grew up in the, in the restaurant world, you, you grew you, it was just a grind. Oh, yeah. You just did it cause you loved it. And, uh, the money, the money for me was, was never actually what I was in it for. And it came because I loved what I did. Yeah. You know? And I think that it's just, it's harder to find people who are in it for that reason. And, uh, a lot of restaurants are struggling. They'll open up and then close because they don't have anybody to work at them. Just like right now, that's a high risk job to take, in my opinion. I mean, I, I don't, I don't go to restaurants. I'm, I'm immunocompromised anyway, but <laughs> I don't, so I don't, I don't do a whole lot of anything right now. But that's, you know, I, I've done carry out from restaurants and curbside and some restaurants that are open, and it's crazy to me seeing the amount of people there mask free and the the servers that especially when like on today when they're out on the patio and it's 96 degrees outside and they're running around with a mask on and i don't know it, it looks like such a, a miserable place to be right now which sucks but i think that's part of the reality of a lot of people maybe not being able to find staff that they're wanting right now of course i'm relating more to front of yeah. the house because that's my experience but that's nuts. Um, well, other than that, I mean, did I did I not touch on anything you wanted to discuss? Um, I mean, I think the only other major life thing that's happened is that I was ordained as a Dharma teacher two weeks ago. So, yeah, I saw that and didn't know what it meant. Can you elaborate on what that is and, and kind of what you do every Sunday with the with Buddhism and, and the Zen uh, center? Is it the Zen Center? Did I fuck that up? Yeah, Zen Center. That's right. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I'm at uh, Dharma Gate Zen in Troy. Well, I, I started going to another Zen Center that was in Royal Oak, and one of the uh, teachers there ended up starting his own Zen Center in Troy. And when he went there, he was kind of the one I had the most ties to, so I followed him there. And just as a as a part of the Sangha. So the Sangha is the, basically the congregation. I, the best way for me is to relate these words to Christianity because that's what we know best in the West. <laughs> okay. Um, so a group of people that go there, the Sangha, right? I, I was a Sangha member. I, I started going to the place in Troy. 
And honestly, the Buddhist path and meditation, it was the main tool that really helped free me from my addictive tendencies and my brain on a daily basis. It was the thing that was most tactfully useful in a regular situation. That and, and I also did my martial arts there. So one day uh, my teacher asked me if, if I would ever consider teaching and I really had no plans on becoming a Dharma teacher or any type of clergy at any point in my life, but it had helped me so much to go on this cursory basis. And I've learned about myself that if I want to stick with something, I have to make commitments around it yeah, or I'll quit. I don't know if that's human nature or <laughs> the addictive brain, but it's like, I'll, I will find reasons to not go and slowly stop going and fall off. Yeah. So I saw this commitment to become what's called a hang job, which is a service position as a way to make sure I showed up at least twice a week. So for about a year, I was uh, basically just like cleaning toilets and making tea and sweeping and mopping the floors. That's the traditional sort of Zen way. You prove that you want to do it by just, you know, working around the center. Doing the grunt um, work. Yeah. Yeah. So I did that for about a year, started my formal training for about four years. Uh, and I actually ended up deferring my ordination. I was supposed to be ordained last year, but my life had fallen out of balance and I didn't feel like I was enough of a guidance for my own life to take on trying to help other people with theirs. So I pushed it off a year. This year I did feel confident and ready to take it on. So basically, the best way to describe it is like a deacon. Okay. I'm not a full monk, but I can do everything a monk can do. Okay. In our in our order, even the monks are allowed to be married. We're very much a Western Zen center. The yeah. whole idea of Dharma Gate was to present a Western style Zen for Western style people, something very bootstrap, relatable, not esoteric what can I say this Sunday that's going to help you with this coming week and be of use, you know, not let's not go through. And this happened with Buddhism throughout the centuries as it traveled from India to China, to Korea, to Japan, it took on the local flavor of what was happening there. And a lot of the things that people see around Buddhism and think is part of Buddhism inherently is really part of a local tradition from a place Buddhism moved to. So there's a lot of different kinds of Buddhism out there, which, which creates a lot of misconceptions. But basically what we do is we strip down everything to the core teachings. Yeah. We focus on an experiential-based enlightenment understanding, which means through direct experience, through meditation, you understand this idea of enlightenment. And then study of really the core fundamentals of what the Buddha taught. So my role now is I run a meditation every Thursday. I do a guided meditation and some zazen meditation. On Sunday, I help run the full service, uh, which includes, you know, like I'll chant. We do a silent meditation. There's these beautiful bells. Then my teacher or myself or my Dharma brother will give the Dharma talk, which is sort of like a 15, 20-minute Buddhist sermon. Okay based on some, it's more educational and then trying to tie that that fundamental core idea to daily life in the West. And, you know, none of us are monks. We all live day-to-day -day lives. We all have jobs. We all have families. Yeah. So it's really just 
trying to be relatable and bring these ideas in a useful way to people. Well, congratulations. Sounds like a big step. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's cool. I like it. That's awesome. Yeah. And that, you I have like to call it. me Reverend now. <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> I still call you Gomer half the time. Um. <laughs> That's funny, actually. Gomer, Gomer almost sounds like one of those end names. I was Bohang when I was a Hangja, which means the jewel of discipline. And then when I became a Dharma teacher, I, I that old name goes away. And now my name is Kogan, which means uh, a source of the light. But we were constantly discarding names because it, it's sort of a symbolic of letting go of the the strong control, the, the grip of self. I get that. Well, cool, man. I uh, I mean, it's, it's amazing what you've been able to accomplish. And I'm super excited about your next restaurant venture, everything you've pumped out of all previous places has been delicious. And I'm, I like that. I didn't know any of that about Vincetta and the menu. So that's cool. But yeah, I, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that story with me about your addiction and, and recovery and everything in between. I mean, that's a conversation we've never had in the 20 years I've known you. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, well, I mean, as much as I talk about myself, you'd think it all would have come out by now. But. <laughs> Nonsense. Uh, all right, man. Well, I'm going to talk to you later on. Tell the bulldog I said hello. I will, absolutely. And hopefully I'll see you in a couple weeks at your own house. Yeah, man. Uh, I hope to be here. <laughs> <laughs> all right, buddy. I'll talk to you later. All right, later. See ya. All right, you just listened to my interview with Aaron. Uh, what an amazing story. Uh, like, addiction obviously is something I, I hold near and dear, and the the things that he's overcome and the things I, throughout that entire period, like I saw him a large number of times, had no idea that he was addicted to opiates or heroin. I, I He really did uh, take pride in hiding that from people. And uh, it's obvious from, from a third party standpoint, looking out, looking back, you know, so I, I appreciate that and his take on the restaurant industry and uh, then all the stuff that he told us about his Zen center and Buddhism and everything like that. So I'm, I'm really enjoyed that interview. I hope you guys did too. Please uh, check out the Patreon that has now launched going to have a bunch of bonus content on there going forward the quarantine mp3s are up wonderful songs that i recorded during quarantine so just some cover songs uh, amongst many other things so check out the patreon and you can go to the instagram or facebook page for friend request at friend request pod and i will talk to you guys soon you can always email me if you have questions and coming soon, we're going to have Ask a Therapist. So start thinking about your therapy questions. You can shoot me an email, justinsfriendrequest at gmail.com. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your week.